Mount Carmel, when we ever look, whenever we look at it in the Word of God, in the Old Testament, um, we see that it's in a very interesting location. It's near the northern border, the northern part of Israel in the tribe of Manasseh. And what I'm saying here is it's important for us to understand this story because I like context. And when you look at, when you look at Mount Carmel, it's between two major nation states. Israel was on the west side of, I'm sorry, on the east side of Mount Carmel, and on the east side of Mount Carmel was the Canaanites, the Phoenicians. We all know from school who the Phoenicians were. They were just basically the Canaanites. And so Israel had an issue going on here. And so Elijah, who initially caused this three-year drought to happen in Israel, he said, there shall be no more rain he went up to see Ahab, told Ahab, King Ahab, there's not going to be any more rain for three years. God's dealing with, with you and Israel and uh, the Canaanites. And so Elijah's on the run. He's hiding out. God's feeding him with ravens. And then, um, then out of nowhere, Elijah comes back on the scene, meets Obadiah, the prophet, who wrote the book of Obadiah. Comes in, meets Obadiah, and says, Obadiah, I need you to go talk to the king, who is look Jezebel, which was the wife of Ahab, is looking like where is this Elijah? We want to. We're going to take him out because. So, so Obadiah goes to King Ahab and says, "Ahab, um, Elijah's here to talk to you." And so Elijah. So Ahab. I like how I like how the man of God thinks. He brings the king to him. Isn't that great thinking? Like, you know, um, I think we do. We think differently in this world, in this society. So the king comes to, a, to Elijah and says to Elijah, are you the man who's causing all this trouble in Egypt and in, in Israel? And Elijah and the, Ahab says, no, it's not me. I'm sorry, Elijah says, it's not me, but it's you, Ahab, because of what you're doing and Jezebel are doing to this nation. And so I love this. The man of God, Elijah, instructs King Ahab. It's so interesting, isn't it? And tells King Ahab, the king, he says, he says bring all the prophets to Mount Carmel. Bring all the prophets of Baal and all the prophets of Asherah. Asherah was a name, was a name of a fertility goddess. And if you know anything about ancient religions, that was, that was, Jezebel was that. And all of these prophets sat at Jezebel's table. Are, are you getting the scene here? I'm trying to draw a picture so we can understand. And so they all come, 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets, or 450 prophets of Jezebel. Or Asherah, they all and all of Israel is supposed to come too. So they all meet at Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is a place of just a place of uh, it's a place between two locations. And so we see here. So Ahab sent all the people in verse twenty of Israel and gathered the peoples together, the prophets, at Mount Carmel. The word Carmel means a fruitful place, just a very blessed location. It's something that. Is very fertile and just wonderful. It's just beautiful even to this day. In verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people and said, all the people, speaks to the, the prophets, the 800 or so prophets, then all the people of Israel, the king and everybody. And he's talking to probably, maybe could be upwards to several thousand people or more. And he says this, how long, and I'm reading from the ESV, how long will you go on limping between two opinions? Not only two opinions, but two nations. And... Uh, to lifestyles, and how long will you continue to do that? And if the God is Lord, and if the Lord is God, follow Him. Lord, remember, is the same name for Baal, which we're going to read here in a second. 
If the Lord is God, Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, which also means Lord, then follow him. And so there's so here we are between two, two points, and he's saying, pick one. And the first point I want to make here is that we live in a culture today in America where I can go to church, praise Jesus, and then Monday I could be serving another Baal in my life. I could have another Lord. Now, in our culture, there are some really awesome, wonderful things, especially in the woodlands, that we really enjoy, like entertainment and, and uh, beauty and, and health and wellness and uh, gyms and education and all of these amazing things that we have been blessed with in our culture. And I believe that God has blessed us with that, right? I believe that God has given us these things. And they're not lords yet. And so he puts out the challenge. But what do the people do? They don't answer him. Why? Because we live in a culture that won't take a side. We won't take sides about things. You know? Mike was sharing with me about a situation during, during his last week or something, I think. And just where he was in a meeting. This is very bold. This is, I think Michael's in the modern day James. <laughs> he gets up and he makes a statement and he just, and he keeps making it and then, you know, he won't sit down. And, and you don't see that. I'm just, I'm not trying to embarrass you, but that really spoke to me this week. And I think that in city government and at work and in business and in our families, we have to make calls sometimes that we don't want to make, but because of what our convictions are, what truth is, and who we're following, we have to make those calls. And so the people don't answer him. And that's, that speaks of just a, a tolerant society. We live in a tolerant society where people are afraid to have convictions because then they're going to be called names, they're going to be on social media or on the news, be, you know, they're going to be misrepresented, and um, we're going to lose friends. And so that's the first thing I want to make is that we live, make this point, is that we live in a society where there's a lot of bales. Now, when, you, when it says here, if, if, uh, if bail, then follow him. This is actually in the plural in the original language, meaning so if you want to follow God, Yahweh, then follow him. But if you, but if you want to follow all the bales, which represent all of, this, all of the great things we have in our society, all the things that we enjoy, our kids and everything like that, all these different bales, then follow them. Because um, these things are not bad in our life. We live in a very blessed culture. And these things are not bad, but when they get into our soul and it becomes a Lord in my life, then that's where the problem begins. Like, I like cars. I like cars. I like different things. I enjoy cars. Both of my cars are in an interesting condition right now. You know, I like, I like, I like cycling. I like all these things. But if it gets into my soul, you know when something gets under your skin and your soul, there's a problem there, you know? For example... Um, Let's get to verse 22. And this is how we know a false God. Elijah said to the people in verse 22, if I even only I, you know that Elisha struggled with loneliness? Struggled with loneliness. A great man of God, but a man of like passions as us. Like passions. Meaning that he struggled with, with issues in his soul. And he would get lonely. He spent a lot of time by himself with the Lord because God, you know, there's some trends in our soul that God has to continually deal with until the day we die. It's just the way it is. I mean, I mean, we learn how to rule over them in Christ, but he struggled with loneliness. And we see this statement several times in his lifetime. I, even only I, am left a prophet of, uh, of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Kind of interesting he says that, isn't it? 
We get into like, and then later on we find out, no, Elijah, that's not true. There's 7,000 other people. And God hides that sometimes for us because Elijah then would put his trust maybe in all of the crowd. Anyway, that's what he's dealing with. Verse 23. So he begins to lay out um, a strategy. He gets all these people together. Thousands of people are at Mount Carmel. And then he lays out this, he lays out this strategy. Let two, two bulls in verse 23 be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. Notice that. No fire. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And then in verse 24, you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Deal? That sound like a good deal? Sounds great. I mean, these, these prophets of Baal are really excited about this because they, they thought God's not going to show up. And the people, all the people answered, it is well spoken. Verse 25, and Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for you yourselves one bull. And they did it. They prepared it. And they, um, I read that already. Verse 26, and they prepared, verse 26, and they took the bull that was given to them. They prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning till noon saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. O Baal, answered us. And they limped around the altar. Now we see this word limped earlier, don't we? The actual word here is to waver or to dance between two things. So they're, they're wavering and they're dancing between one opinion and the other opinion. James calls this a double-mindedness. And they took the bull, they sacrificed it, they're crying out. In verse 27, at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry louder, for he, is a, for he is a God. Either he is meditating, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey. You know, on a journey is because the Phoenicians were travelers, and they were moving around a lot. And they believed that when they were, when they were in their ships exploring, that Baal was with them. But per- perhaps he's asleep, and he must be awakened. Now for, now, for Elijah to mock Baal was a sentence of automatic death. Uh, he, was not, he was just going for the juggler. He did not care. And they cried aloud in verse 28 and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. That is an offering in Jewish culture that at the end of the day, it was time to sacrifice. And so right up to the time of sacrifice, God, according to God's schedule, yes, God has a schedule. He has a plan. He laid it all out. And there's a time here for the Jews to sacrifice. And so it's pretty clear that Baal's not showing up. So Elijah says, well, hey, it's, it's time for the evening sacrifice to God. So let's keep with a godly schedule here. He says this. He said, and to the end of the, at the, to the time of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. That's Baal for you. You sell your life to Baal, to the Baals of this world, and then when you need him, he doesn't show up. And it, it actually continues. And so this is how we know what is a false god in our life. We do the dance of acceptance. Now, I was thinking about this word dance. Now, I don't dance. My wife dances. She knows how to dance. She's from Europe. And I guess it's very tiring, right? I mean, if you dance, <laughs> it's, I don't know if you guys have ever danced. I did for like three seconds and I looked crazy. I was tired. I was just tired. It's a lot of cardio going on. You know, you're moving your legs and, you know, you're trying not to step on your partners. I don't dance. I just, 
I just don't want to break anybody's legs or anything like that. And so this dance starts to happen in our lives. So here's what happens is that we have a bail for it. Let's say it's, I'm not hitting on the health levels. I'm just saying that there are things in our culture that like I got to look a certain way and I got to act a certain way. And it's just all of these laws that happen. And when we do all of that, for some of us, because we're introverts, it's exhausting, isn't it? Like just to perform. So this dancing is really a performance for Baal. Yeah. And so this performance for Baal is, or, and this Baal, we can say it's either beauty or it's a car or it's just keeping my front lawn. I mean, I live in Bender's Landing and man, people that worship lawns, they live there. I mean, I, I, you go to their lawn and you could, it's like, you know, they got like these little angle tools and they're just like making sure their, their lawn is perfect right angle. And we worship that stuff, and go, but, but maybe I'm struggling with depression. And so when I'm struggling with depression, this idol in my life is not going to show up and comfort me, right? How many have been there? You know, where's all my friends? Where's all my Facebook friends? Sometimes people put out their, you know, like a cryptic statement. You ever see these things that says like, um, uh, it's a little cryptic statement, and when you read it, you're saying, okay, they're trying to make a statement here. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like though everybody has forsaken me and doesn't talk to me, I know I'm, lo- I know I'm loved, my dog loves me. And everybody who reads that, that hasn't talked to that person, just feels guilty, right? It feels bad. And so they, this is their, you know, that's their idol. And so this idol doesn't, doesn't come and comfort them. Actually, it's nowhere to be found. And, we, and then because it's not, it's like, for example, we think, I've got to be more beautiful. Or I gotta work out more, and then I'm gonna get that love and that attention that I need, right? So we do that. We just start. We start doing the dance. We start spending energy, and then when that, when, when there's no response that I'm looking for, this attention, this comfort, what happens is, is that I, I take it up another notch. I go from the dance, the performance, and then I go into self harm. I start hurting myself. I get into some addiction of some kind. You know. Um, you know, maybe a guy is looking for attention from a girl. He's not getting it, so he goes into porn or something. He's looking for that attention, that sense of value and stimulation, and it's not coming. And so the next step is really self-destructive habits, cutting and injuring ourselves and, and doing all these things to us. Because why? Because we're trying to please the bail in my life, the beauty. Okay, I start, I start losing weight, and I, start, I, become an, I become like an anorexic and... You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Maybe a young girl um, is worshiping beauty, and uh, maybe just like an 11-year-old, 13-year-old, and they're worshiping this, this concept of what they see on magazines or on the internet, or maybe the most beautiful girl at the school who won't give you an, a, an ounce of attention unless you're like her. You know what I'm talking about? This happens. And so this young girl starts to get into doing this dance and performance around the altar of Baal, and then it's not, it's not happening. And then this girl begins to go into, uh, into more self-destructive habits because she needs the attention of a man. And she wants to get the attention of a man because she doesn't feel the worth in her because um, she doesn't understand what a, she doesn't have a godly father maybe or she doesn't understand the godly love of, a, of, a, of, the, of her heavenly father. And she starts to enter into self-destructive habits. That is what we're seeing here. That's the veil of, of today's beauty in today's world. And so, when we begin to interact with these great things that God has allowed us to have by His grace, we let it get under our skin, then the problem begins. And then what happens is, is that this idol, this Baal, or this thing in my life that I'm exalting is something that's very important in my life, 
When it gets under my skin, it can start to jerk me around. You know what I'm saying? It's like, well, that person doesn't like that about me. So because I'm seeking to be getting the praise of men more than the praise of God, then that's going to get under my skin. Somebody's going to make a little comment over here. And then it's going to just jerk me over to the other side. Like, I'm over here. I'm going to get jerked over here. How many know what I'm talking about? That jerking. Like that, like that, that influencing. This has spiritual authority in my life now. Something that is an aspect of society that God allowed to happen in, to us and our, our society to enjoy now gets under our skin and then we become, and we become controlled by this thing. And it begins, it enters, we enter into. Why? Because false gods demands performance and they demand a sacrifice. And they, divide, they, they, they demand blood. You look at the ancient cultures of Central, Central America and South America, which is really interesting to look at sometimes, you can see human sacrifice. Every culture that has, for hundreds of years, has deviated from who Christ is, has always entered into sacrifice. Either we need to be sacrificed more animals, or sacrifice, sacrifice more warriors, or sacrifice more people. And then it got all the way down to Moloch worship, where they're sacrificing their own babies. Yeah, this is pretty gross, but this is the world that we live in. That's happening in America today. That is happening in America today for sure. So we do. Let me just review this. We get a, We get a blessing in our life or an aspect of our society. We start. We let it get under our skin, and we start deriving our value from it. And then when we derive our value from it, we, we experience a poor self-image if it doesn't happen. And if it doesn't happen, then I have to start my dance, my performance. And then after my performance is done, and guess what? Every one of us has this in our room. There's Every one of us in this room has some kind of a ritual that we do when we feel threatened or when we feel that we're not liked. And we do this little dance, this little ritual, and then we feel better about ourselves. But if we can't get the comfort we need, then we go into self-sacrifice. We start hurting ourselves either psychologically or we start hurting ourselves physically in some way. And then there's... The, and, that, and, you know, when you talk today, I mean, I'm really connected. I mean, I understand what's going on in high schools today. Kids cutting themselves, you know, bleeding. Because psychologically, they feel that if they sacrifice themselves, they're going to feel better about themselves. I, I don't know how popular, I mean, how big that is down here, but I know in the Northeast, it's big. You know, kids come, to come you know, I counseled one young kid, and he was like, he had like scars on his hand, and he, I said... We got talking, and, and it was quite a while we were talking. And then he said, you know, I cut myself because I'm angry at myself. And when I, when I cut myself and I see my blood, I feel, I feel some sense of redemption. Isn't that wild? Isn't that weird? Like, that's just, that's, like, that's just satanic, isn't it? It's just not God. It's just the opposite. And so what do we do? What do we tell the people like that? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know really what to say a lot of times to people. I just want to, I just talk about who you are in Christ. Talk about the finished work. Talk about the plan of God in your life. Talk about the power of God in your life, the Holy Spirit in our life that makes us a new creation. And so the answer is this, is that, and so the, I just want to finish this point here, is that the real way we know something is an idol in our life is when we find acceptance from that, and when we, when we search for acceptance from that, and when we don't find it, we do the dance of performance and we begin to hurt ourselves. The last point I want to hear to make this morning is this, is remember what we said about sacrifice? Remember what we talked about when we talked about blood? This scene on Mount Carmel has so much to do with the finished work of Jesus Christ, okay? Because in verse 30, Elijah says to all the people, come near to me. Now it's his turn. 
Now, I don't know, I'm word, I'm a word person. I like words, I like, I like to look at, I notice them. And he says, come near to me. Now, how many times does Elijah say this just in this portion of scripture? Four times. He says this four times. He draws, he asks the people to come near to him. And then he says, come near to me. Well, you know why? Because when we are serving a Baal in our life, a Lord in our life, that gets under our skin and we start performing and killing ourselves for it, guess what happens? No one answers. And what's the answer to that? Separation anxiety, right? Are you getting this? Are you following this? We start to feel loneliness and we start to feel all these weird things and we feel separated until the man of God shows up, until Jesus shows up, until someone comes up in our life and says, come here, come come close. That's what Christianity needs to be. This is what Christ was all about. Come near to us. Come near to me. This is called fellowship. Don't you love that? That's so comforting. All this craziness and blood and gore all over there on that altar over there. Hey, guys, and it must have scattered the people. I don't know. It must have been just something atrocious to look at. People are maybe walking away or just like, I can't look at that. Then then Elijah says, come near to me. Come near to me. And this is what God says to us through the body of Christ. Come near. You know, my wife and I have met just some amazing people in in government. We live near Washington, D.C. We've met some very important people in in the political world. We've met actresses, actors. I don't know why God has just brought us in, but we've always spoken to their life. And you would not believe how many of them have said, I'm lonely. I just crave the normal relationships that people have when they're not famous. People would dress up like in hoods. And one, one um, woman said to us, I dress up in like, you know, a hoodie and just kind of loose, loose clothing so that would just blend in the crowd so I could just be a person and nobody would know who I was. I'm lonely. And so Elijah says, come near to me. Come near to me. That's what Jesus said to the disciples who had just failed. All of them had failed him in John 19 and John 20. And Jesus says to all disciples, peace be unto you. He's he's this resurrected Lord, comes into the room, through the wall, and, and he says, peace be unto you. I'm not angry at you. Come near to me. And he says, come near me. And all the people came near to him. And, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down in verse 30. Very big point here. I'm going to finish up in a couple minutes. What does the first, what's the first thing that Elijah does? He includes, he's very inclusive. He's very, he, he, he um, brings people near to him. Into, he invites them into his space. That's body life. And then he says, then he goes and repairs the altar of the Lord. What's the altar of the Lord today for us? What is the altar? That's a question for you guys. What is the altar for the New, New Testament believer? where the sacrifice was sacrificed. The cross. So he, he brings all the attention of the people to a symbol of the coming Christ who's going to die on a cross. And he said, so he brings people near to him and then, it's, then he makes the issue of the cross and not their performance. He said, look, I want to show you, I don't want your performance, I don't want your blood, I want to just show you a cross that's coming in your life. And this is our message as a church, is that we are pointing people, not on what they're supposed to do for the church, you know, but to point them to the cross where it was already finished. Amen. And he says, he, he begins to rebuild that. He begins to make the emphasis, the, the, the altar. And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And he, with those stones, built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order. 
wooden order is just a great, beautiful picture of the, of the obedience of Jesus Christ uh, in, as, the, as the burnable offering to the Lord. And cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the ground. And he said, fill four jars of water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Now, how important is that? That's important because later on he says, do that three times. And that's 12, 12, 12 barrels. Now, remember what's going on here. There's been no water for three years. So one barrel is going to be, I don't know how much it is. It's going to be a massive barrel. And we want 12 of it. That's, I mean, that's like, okay, Israel, go find some water wherever you can. I know it's going to cost you something. But just go out there and get it and then start pouring it on the offering. Okay, now remember, he's praying to a God and the God who's the God that answered by fire is supposed to burn up this soggy sacrifice. And this just speaks of the impossibility that God brings us into. Like, there's no ounce whatsoever of, there's no fire, there's a, there's a bowl, and then there's 12 barrels of water. And so they pour it all on this and they do it a second time, a third time. And the water ran around the altar in verse 35 and filled the trench also with water. The, the, the total impossibility. Are you in a situation today where you just feel like you are so soggy, so wet, so inignitable because of circumstances that have come, that people have come and it's like, okay, here it comes again. Another person's going to put another barrel of water on I me. Mean, I'm just, I'm dead. And that's going to happen 12 times. As he does that, and when that happens... Then, um, then, and then Elijah came near and said, this is the second time, came near. I love this guy. He's just drawn near. Now he's drawn near. He draws near to the people. And then he draws near to the Lord. And he, and he draws near to the, to the uh, altar. And he says, he says this, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. So he's making the point here that this God that's going about, about to burn up this offering has a history here. And he says, and he begins to pray, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. Who else said that? I think David said that before he wasted Goliath, right? Remember that? That you may be, that's how we should pray, by the way. So Lord, that you could be shown the God, the Lord of my life and the Lord of, um, the, uh, of, of the church. We pray, and that's how our prayers begin. It shouldn't begin like, well, God, I did all of this performance um, I heard one guy say like this. He goes, I was wait- I've been waiting for a provision in my life from God. And he said, I prayed all the prayers in Jesus' name. I was filled with the Spirit. I confessed all my sins. I was doing this and this and this, and then God didn't answer. What's the problem there? It's not that God doesn't answer prayer. It's like, who are we praying to? Are we praying based on my, all of the things I've done? Like the rich young ruler. See, God wants to answer our prayers despite us. Yeah. I mean, it's possible that like, okay... Um, I'm a bad person maybe, or maybe I haven't been keeping up with all of my rituals or whatever. And God, I'm just crying out to you, Lord, be gracious to me. Just be merciful unto me, a sinner. And, and that, that prayer of grace and mercy means so much to God. And so we don't ever pray based on our own merit. He just says, Abraham, the faith man, Isaac, and so on. That you would be shown that you are... Um, and that you have done all of these things at your word. Verse 37, answer me that these people may know you, O Lord, that you have, and catch this, okay? Don't miss this. That you, that you, God, have turned these, that this, that, that I keep losing my place here, I'm sorry. 
that you have turned their hearts back. That you have turned their hearts back. Now, what does that mean? He's talking in the past tense because maybe he's discerning what's going on here, um, what's happening with the people. And he is saying that it's God who turns us to repentance, right? It's the, it's the mercy and the grace of God in Romans chapter 2 it's the, it's the, and, the fair, and the patience of God that really turns our heart. It's not me chewing the varnish off the altar at the end of the service. It's God who speaks to us who turns our heart. And so I think that there's an aspect of repentance that really that we can really add, um, attribute to the power of God because repentance is a gift. And then he says that you have turned their hearts back. And then in verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed, consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones, even the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. It's amazing, isn't it? God just didn't burn the offering, the sacrifice, but he burned up everything. He tore it. He tore it all up. And then when the people saw it, they fell on their faces. Everyone said, the Lord, he is God. The, the Lord, he is God. And then verse 40. Repentance happens in our life. Change happens in our life when we really, really behold who God is. It says this in the book of Corinthians. He said that beholding the glory of the Lord, we are changed. It's not me like beholding my list of moral, moral practices and habits that I got to be doing because I, I'm not as sure of my I'm not sure of my relationship with God. I don't have this confidence He's going to answer me, and I just have to do my dance, my religious dance. These prophets and these people they were they had no assurance with Baal. Their 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 relationship was not sure, and at any moment, um, if this Baal God was was mad at them then uh, they would not have money to pay for their mortgage, or they wouldn't have this or that. And then, we, and then so we blame ourselves. Here, the issue, and if you don't get anything out of this message, I just want you to get this one thing, is that we are not the sacrifice. Our performance is not the sacrifice. My history of good works is not, is not, is not, is not the issue. Jesus Christ, he brings out here, is the sacrifice. And this is what this means, is that How can I put this in a simple way? What is this is saying is, okay, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 12. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with that I have to receive. And oh, can, I, can, I can hardly be, I can hardly be restrained until it be accomplished. What's he referring to? He's referring to that he's going to be the sacrifice and the fire of God is going to fall and he's going to be burned up. Get it? It's not your works, my works, all I'm doing for God. And I think, you know, walking in godliness is, is, is paramount. It's, un, it's, it's very important. But, but we are not the sacrifice, and we're not the reason why the fire of God falls. Jesus is the sacrifice. That means I don't need to do the dance. I don't need to do all of the self-destructive stuff. The fire is going to fall, and the fire falls on Jesus Christ in, in Luke chapter 12 and, and John 19. He is the sacrifice. And this is how I want to end, end, end this. How, we are, how are we going to find God? How are we going to know God? It can only be through one way. Fire. Because it, all of our... We can't deal with our own veils. We can't deal with all of our defects. We can't deal with all of this stuff. It has to be the fire of God in our life. And when the fire of God falls in our life, then that's when absolute surrender happens. Everybody's on their face. That's when God is proven to be God. That's when the miracles happen. That's when people are transformed. It's because the fire of God comes down 
on a sacrifice. That's why, get this, that's why the prophets weren't bought, the prophets of Baal were not burnt up. We're thinking, okay, burn up those prophets. They weren't burnt up. It wasn't anything else that was burnt up. It wasn't Israel that was burnt up. It was the offering, and that's Jesus Christ. Yes. We get that? Yeah. And so the important point here is, is that whenever we're, whenever we're stuck in something, we're like in this, in this toxic relationship with something that I was doing in my life and gotten under my skin, now is like jerking me around in my life. Whenever that starts happening, look at the sacrifice. Because the God of fire has already come down in, in John chapter 19, when he said, it is finished, the sacrifice has been, has been made, has been done, and Jesus has received that fire. That is why when the disciples in Luke chapter 9 were evangelizing, and this is me, they're evangelizing, they're doing, they're doing, they're minister, they're doing ministry in villages, and they get kicked out, they get rejected. And you know, secretly, they're, they're dealing with rejection. They're hurt, they're angry, they're the powerful disciples. They, didn't get, they weren't listened to. So they go back to Jesus and they say, Jesus, should we cast down fire like Elijah did? And, and Jesus, what does he say? He says, you don't know what spirit you are. Why? Because God doesn't cast fire down on people. I mean, that happens, Sodom and Gomorrah, that happens. But the main issue here is, is that God's not bringing, God doesn't want to bring down fire on people to burn people up. That happened with Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus says, you don't know what spirit of you are because... Because you're dealing, you got, you were rejected, and that's a God in your life, self-pleasing people and gratifying yourself on people. And when you got rejected, now you want to react and have the fire of God fall on people. Well, Jesus said two chapters later, I'm the sacrifice. You know, we look at people sometimes, we say, man, we look at people's calamities, we say, that person deserved that. We use the word karma, you know, and we say, karma's coming back. Well, that's the Eastern philosophy that does have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus said, pray for your enemies. Love them and um, bless them that persecute you and that, that despise you. And so the fire of God in our life falls when we're looking at Jesus Christ and when, the, when, when these idols are burnt up, that's when God starts to move. That's when God starts doing incredible things. It's nothing that we can conjure up and it's not something that we can make happen in our lives. It only happens when we're looking at the sacrifice. Amen. He's a God who answers by fire <clears throat> and it heals any double-mindedness in our life. Amen. So let's pray and, and just do a song together.